This is SBE Talks Tech with Trent and Steve. All right, everybody listening out there in podcast land, this is Trent, and I'm joined with Steve. We're two editors with the Journal of Petroleum Technology. This is probably going to be one of the last podcasts we do of the year. So, Steve, we, we kind of came up with an idea. What, what is it? Let's face it, Trent. You know, it's it's December. Anybody's a reporter gets lazy and said, hey, it's time to start the, start those lists and talk about what we did this year. Hey, don't blame it on me. Sources stop answering phone calls around this time of year, too. So. Right. And, you know, we, it's a new podcast, so nobody's heard of us talk about these stories. So why, why miss these opportunities? All right. Well, let's get into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Start off, why don't you? So our last podcast, we also did a list. So just in case anybody thinks we're like losing original or we're not coming up with original ideas here, this, this list is actually made by the people who read JPT. So we were going to do a quick review of the top 10 most read stories on JPT's website for the year of 2019. I don't know about you, Steve, but I kind of liked the the cross section. I thought I saw a couple of themes here. One was sort of uh, a lot of interest in the challenges that the U.S. Uh, shale sector is facing, and then a lot of interest to, sort of on the digital side. Those were sort of my high-level takeaways. Absolutely, and, bo- and both of those point to, I think, another th- a third thing, which is a lot of these point to how the job of engineers, demand for engineering is changing over time, that you, people realize this is personal. Okay, well, we're going to just run down this list real quick, kind of tease out the, the, the topic and, and talk about the things that we liked from these stories or the things that were interesting to us. And we're going to put a link to these on the show notes so that you can go read them in case you missed them. But number 10, starting off. Number 10. Shell EOR delivers, so why won't the sector go big? Well, that's your story, Trent, so why don't you kind of tell them what you learned? Yeah, so this is um, our latest update, our 2019 deep dive into the topic of shale EOR, which mostly refers to huff and puff gas injections, mostly in the Eagleford shale. We're starting to see some experiments in the Permian. There's been a lot of work over the years in the Bakken that, that I would not say has gone uh, well. And so the examples that we have seen that have worked mostly come from, you know, EOG, one company in the entire spectrum of of shale production. And we kind of explained why there's bottlenecks there. By virtue of this topic being, or this story being number 10 on the list, it shows that there's a lot of interest in here, not a lot of activity. And the problems uh, come down to uncertainty over how the process works and just trouble getting all of the pieces together, mainly the giant gas compressors that you need to do it. I mean, I talked to one engineer late in the year on another story and he'd just been shifted to EOR and I said, well, does it work? And he said, well, you know, the gas goes in, more oil comes out, but the question is, can you do it economically? And the answer so far is nobody knows. And I think that's what's really stymieing the industry on this one. Yeah, I just saw a really great presentation by somebody who was working with the EOR team for EP Energy, which has been closely trying to follow EOG's success in the Eagleford. And it was clear to hear from the presentation, they actually ran into a lot of unexpected challenges. And and one thing that uh, I learned there was this issue of containment, uh, where does the gas go? Can we keep it in the area of the reservoir near these, these wells that we wanted to? that issue is actually not fully resolved. The advice was, if you're going to do a shale EOR project, first pick an unbounded well that has no communication with with other wells 
and see how long it takes to get the results out of that well. Then you can start to do some you know, quicker economic forecasting. But the takeaway from EP Energy was it takes a long, long time to figure out if this works over a year, maybe a year and a half. In today's short cycle you know, environment for shale, that's not really a big seller with the boardroom. I suppose also the other reality is that the big, intense fractures in really tightly spaced wells creates situations to make bonding, keeping the gas going where it's supposed to go really, really tough. Yeah, we've been told in, in this reporting and other reporting that if you if, if you had an area that, that suffered a lot of frack hits, a lot of long-term communication, um, Shale EOR, at least with um, Huff and Puff, is probably not going to be great. So, uh, so yeah, there's a lot to unpack on that one. We're actually going to try to, I think, in quarter one or, or Q2, um, circle back around and see if there's any other developments on the Shell EOR front. So what's next, Trent? Number nine. Number nine. Directional drilling becomes office work at Chevron and Hess. It was interesting where both Chevron and Hess had talked about how bringing the directional drillers into control centers uh, for for the people of Chevron, it gave them the ability to exert a you know, more consistent approach to how they do directional drilling, which was also the case for Hess. Hess talked about this re- in a story I'm working on this for the next month's issue. And what, what one of the things they said that is a big positive here is that by having two drillers look at following six wells at a time, they learn faster. So there's also just the element of these things fit into uh, programs that help them continuously improve how they drill. And I think it kind of is a representation, not only that, that more people are going to be uh, in places and maybe controlling drilling from Houston in North Dakota, but also that they're going to be required to figure out not only how to drill that well, but how to drill the next well better. Yeah, consistency and then obviously overhead um, are both advantages here. You have your best directional driller working on six rigs, all from the air-conditioned comfort of a downtown Houston building. But what's also interesting here, though, that is that it shows that there's like sort of a partial vertical, vertical integration happening on the drilling side with the operators. They're actually taking over, you know, what is a, uh, a, a oil field service. Perhaps. I'm not sure if those direct, who those directional drillers work for. Yeah, so I guess theoretically they could be working for a directional drilling company at Hess, or they could be directly employed by Hess. Well, another th- interesting thing is the way Hess does it, they stuck that person next to the person who is in charge of geosteering. So they're going to look at it and say, hey, you're out of zone. And then the two of them have to work out how to get there without creating a really, uh, really jagged well path along the way. So what's next, uh, Trent? Number eight. Number eight. To solve frack hits, unconventional engineering must revolve around them. So this was another story that I wrote uh, earlier in the year. This was basically my big summary from the Hydraulic Fracturing Technology Conference, the annual um, unconventional event in the Woodlands that we put on with the SBE here. There was a call to action during the the opening session. So there's probably 2,000 people in the room. Uh, there's nowhere else to really be at this point in the conference. Few experts got up and gave very compelling presentations that basically outlined why and how um, this idea of fracture-driven interference, frack hits, why it it really is the defining issue of the day for for shale production and development. As you talked about, I think in the last podcast, this does kind of come down to understanding not only when something shoots from one to the other and causes damage, but just really understanding what's going on 
you know, all those fractures in between wells. It's something that uh, we, we talk about a lot, obviously, but it bears repeating. This this is the entire equation is is, sh- is well spacing and well spacing translates straight into um, your well inventory. So figuring out how these wells work together as a system, that's going to be essential going forward. And we know that in the past, um, trying to diagnose these these interactions, that was not a priority. Today, it's it's a major priority across the spectrum. So it doesn't really matter what size of a, of a shale producer you are. You are probably more focused on watching frack hits and learning how they behave than you ever were before. And you'll be reporting on the kind of... Uh Decline rates are showing up in part because of these things. Yeah, yeah. So separate but related topic, right? We're going to be following, you know, that story for the foreseeable future. No question. And next is? Louisiana Austin Chalk. Hundreds of millions down the drain. So this was an area that's into, I had an interesting kind of personal story because I have friends who live uh, in Baton Rouge area and they have a bunch of land that they were looking, every time I visit them, they talk about how those Austin Chalk uh, exploration wells are getting closer and closer to land, and they were looking forward to the day of leasing all that timberland for, for drilling. And then this story came out, and it became apparent, there's another story, by the way, by uh, Matt Zabrowski, that uh, he does a really complete job looking at the serious, serious problems they've had with the kind of water that they're coming getting into these wells. I mean, the amount of water production is such that they're just, even though there was oil in there, that the... the it was far, far too much water to actually make these things economic. And it doesn't mean that the, um, the whole field is going to go, the whole play is going to go away, but it, it definitely does seem like people are already starting to take some write-offs and there's real questions about whether they're going to have any appetite in this, in this particular market to keep looking to see if there's, um, this water is general or maybe specific to where they did their test wells. Yeah, it's really interesting because when we think about unconventionals in Louisiana, we tend to think about the Haynesville. But if you've been around for a little while, you remember the Tuscaloosa Marine Shale, and then now you have the Louisiana side of the Austin Chalk. So so looking for tight oil in Louisiana has not gone well. And I think one of the quotes that uh, stuck out to me in that story was somebody um, who was sort of an observer was saying that uh, the only people making money in that play are the saltwater disposal companies, and <laughs> that that was not the, um, the the way it was supposed to go. Apparently not forever. And so what's next on the list? Number six. Number six. Schlumberger CEO outlines new vision for company. What do you think about this one, Steve? Well, first, there, there's the bold moment where I attempt to, to pronounce a French name. Give it a shot. Okay, the new CEO, um, Olivier Depouche talked at an investor conference and, and he made the point that, that the future of oil and gas is digital and their company is going to change because of that. Uh, those capabilities are going to mean a lot more performance along the value chain, which means also that is an exit strategy of a sort for them because you also talked about that they're going to be resizing the North American onshore operations, which is something that you talked about a few months ago and I think we're going to be seeing more of and also by Halliburton as well recently of people pulling back from these uh, operations which haven't been making money in the uh, U.S. shale and focusing more on the growth that is uh, internationally and offshore. Yeah, I mean, Schlumberger being the biggest service provider in the world, um, it's easy for a company like that to, you know, overextend itself during 
a better period of the cycle. And then when that down cycle comes, um, you know, you're left holding the bag. And so that's a very uh, bitter pill that we saw everybody had to swallow in 2015. And as we see sort of a, the second slowdown of shale coming, looks like Schlumberger wants to be much more involved with uh, digital, which, you know, really just means they want to become more of a software company. They're talking about a doubling uh, of that line of business within a, a relatively short period of time. And it does, that's going to involve a culture change, I think. I mean, one thing they mentioned is that they're, they're actually going to be making some of the, their, their operating system that they use for a lot of this data analysis uh, open source, which is really a break from the kind of proprietary focus that they've always had. It'll be interesting to see if the industry as a whole uh, will actually go that way and whether that sharing uh, that you see a lot in the, uh, the tech sector is going to show up in the oil sector. Yeah, the proprietary model for software and the vendor lock situations are extremely unpopular these days amongst the operators, a.k.a. the clients. And so Schlumberger's probably had no choice but to adopt um, more or less what are the, considered the modern, you know, sort of approaches for software. You know, you look at Facebook and Google, it's amazing how much uh, open source um, solutions they offer. And so Halliburton and Schlumberger are obviously, they're going that direction. And so that, that arc is bending towards open source and, uh, and a lot more collaboration. So that was uh, number 10 through six of the most read stories on JPT for 2019. But we got other publications here at the SBE. I'm going to toss it over to Jason Torres. He's going to give you the top five most read stories from some of our other publications. Thanks, Trent. So for the criteria of this list, we are looking at 2019's most read articles from the following websites. Oil and Gas Facilities, which focuses on projects, systems, tech, and news of facilities engineering. Data Science and Digital Engineering, SPE's newest publication presenting the evolving landscape of data management, The Way Ahead, written by and for young professionals, and HSE Now, covering stories affecting health, safety, environment, social responsibility, regulation, and quality aspects of upstream oil and gas. Number five on this list, oil field flares provide a glaring reminder of the drive to produce more oil. This HSE Now article by Steve breaks down data that shows natural gas flared in just two major U.S. shale plays exceeded the amount of gas consumed in both Colombia and Israel all of last year. At number four, transforming petroleum engineers into data science wizards. Found on DSDE, we learn there's no magic spell. Hard work and application are key in this tips and tricks article about data science and machine learning. Number three. Technique FMC to create two independent, publicly traded companies. The French engineering company is expected to complete this in the first half of 2020. The first spin-off company would be one of the largest E&C pure plays. The other would be a fully integrated technology and services provider. More on this story can be found on OGF. And number two, Shells Van Bearden ranks number two in CEO World 2019 Best CEOs list. This TWA article discusses what went into the rankings, and spoiler, a total of four oil and gas company CEOs are ranked in the top 10 of this list. And the most read story this year from these websites comes from OGF, Oil and Gas Facilities, and it is GE Closes Sale of Baker Hughes Shares. A popular topic since GE bought out Baker Hughes in 2017, this story continues to garner interest. The biggest takeaway? Baker Hughes is no longer a subsidiary of GE. 
and is now rebranded back to Baker Hughes with a fresh new green logo. Trent? Great stuff, Jason. And a reminder, all of these links are going to be on the show notes. So if you want to go read these stories and get caught up, you'll have your chance. All right, so Steve, we're back. Uh, We have five more headlines to read. I'm just going to get right into it. Number five is the digital transformation at BP is starting to add up to billions. Number five. Right. Well, that's a story you did. So why don't you give us a get get us started on it? Yeah, it's a it's a wordy headline, but you know it it it, it deserved to be uh, written that way. I think just because we, a lot of people are wanting to see where is the money coming from all these digital investments. We talked a little bit about uh, which Lumberjay was kind of trying to do with its new direction, but but BP has been super aggressive on the digital front. They've been investing in dozens and dozens of startups. They've been, um, I think, fairly ambitious with some of the with some of the uh, projects that they're trying to do. But I mean, they're doing everything from from robots to new seismic technology to cognitive learning, which is or cognitive AI, which is sort of considered the the highest order of artificial intelligence, and therefore it comes with like the most skepticism. Uh, but they are saying that it's resulting in tens of thousands of extra barrels a day for the company and that they're eliminating cost and being able to move forward with a leaner workforce. And so uh, so they've, you know, they've been boasting about their success stories. I mean, yeah, their digital focus, I think, began particularly in the, in the world of seismic. I mean, they have invested really heavily in advanced methods for for analyzing and crunching all this data, which is the most you know data-intensive thing the industry does, and it's paid off. I mean, they've not only found a lot of oil, but they found a lot of oil right near really big fat platforms, particularly here the story reported on Thunder Horse. Yep. And you know, that's cheap oil to add, and that, that in this market, you need tech to be cheap. It's funny you mentioned that because as we sit, you know, we're, we're maybe two miles from uh, BP's Houston offices where they have a giant, you know, supercomputer right on the side of the highway. And that was considered sort of cutting edge when that was open. They've, they've upgraded that facility, but we've gone beyond just supercomputers. You know, it's, it's now about algorithms, robots, and, uh, and, you know, even things like 3D printing. So one of the cool things that, uh, that's probably not in this story, but BP does a lot is uh, they print out the uh, the reservoir rocks and they kind of scale them up and they they ta- they 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 hand them around the uh, the room for all the exploration geologists to sort of touch and see the you know the uh, porosity. So they've they've really gone um, you know uh, full bore on the digital transformation, but it's early days. Um, like I said, it's it's I think it's pretty fair to be skeptical of a lot of this because we don't know exactly where the million dollar ideas are yet. But BP's argument is that we've 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 done so much of this that we're actually getting, you know, really tangible results. And I'll just add one one big piece of this because since this is early stage, is uh, you know they've they've really invested in a in a big digital twin project, and so a lot of their gains are coming from reducing or removing downtime from their facilities. So it, you know every minute you get to uh, keep a offshore production platform pumping oil you know, that's, that's a minute of a lot of money. And so taking that lost time out of their operations, that's where a lot of these gains are coming from. And that they've also invested over time in uh, the display so that they think of the human aspect of how do you, how do people, controllers, engineers interact with all of these things effectively? Yeah. Yeah. So it, the, if read that story, if you want to sort of get a holistic view of like what one giant super major um, is doing in the digital world, but uh, we'll move on to number four. Report recounts the missed signals leading to a blowout that killed five. So this is a, this is a sad, tragic headline. Steve, you wrote this story. 
Yeah, that was, um, I mean, really, it, it was a story that, uh, it's a report that people should read. The, the, the exploration, well, well in Oklahoma, really didn't get much notice. I mean, five people died. It, it was one that should have, that, you know, should have had the kind of impact that say Macondo had, but really almost had a few stories and not much follow-up on it. And what was, was striking about reading this report that involved uh, a rig by, owned by uh, Patterson UTI, UTI and working for a little company I'd never heard of before this, uh, Red Mountain Energy, it for 14 hours there was this uh, building up of gas in the well, and the, the crew just continued to miss signal after signal that, there was this, this, you know, all this mud was coming out of the well because of the rising pressure inside. I mean, it really read like one of those horror movies where you can definitely see that something really horrible is going to happen at the end, and nobody is seeing it except you. And it, um, except it's real. And, it, and for that reason, it was pretty wrenching. I got a lot. So I remember seeing comments afterwards on LinkedIn about, you know, I've been in wells like that, and there was always some bright guy that noticed it before it was too late. But I think anybody who's involved in drilling or just in the industry, it, it's worth reading just to think about what what's at stake. It's a sad reminder that despite all the technology, um, despite all the the um, you know the history that this industry has with with uh, safety incidents, they still happen. And uh, you know this was onshore, kind of in the middle of Oklahoma, and like you said, it didn't get near near the attention that Macondo did, but it also didn't result in a, you know, long-lasting subsea, you know, uh, oil spill containment issue. But but the the fact is that what I read, what I took away from this story was that those signs are always there, right? And and so sometimes, you know, you can get away with it. But in this case, those signs, you know, were 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 there for everybody to interpret and they just, you know, they just kept going through with the job. Yeah, I mean, looking at it, it did seem like that, that rig and maybe a lot of rigs lacks any really good way to monitor what's going on when it comes to the the amount of mud. I mean, the driller didn't really understand how to use this new uh, spreadsheet-based system that was going to tell them how much drilling mud they had in there so they knew if it was weighted upright. And I, it definitely seems like something that the industry should be following up on so that there is a standard that there are easy-to-use tools that drillers really understand so that they see what's going on and they don't think make the, you know, it reduces the risk of these kind of mistakes happening again. You know, my dad used to work on a, um, on a rig offshore uh, back in the 70s, and, and he was a, you know, greenhorn roughneck, and one of his jobs was whenever they had a kick was to go break 50-pound uh, bags of bear right and throw that into the well. And he said that, uh, you know, his professional life, that's, that's still the, that was the scariest thing he had ever, ever did was trying to uh, uh, mud up, as they say, and stop a kick. Couldn't imagine a more important person at that moment. <laughs> yeah, well, we, and we, we, know, we, we know that kick technology has come a long ways. We've written about this, both of us, but it still has a long ways to go. Let's do uh, number three. Number three. Okay, we're getting to almost to the finish here. These five companies are reinventing the U.S. frack fleet. So this is a little bit of a, uh, of a teaser headline, um, but we looked at five different companies uh, that were not necessarily frack, you know, pumpers, uh, pressure pumpers. But these were people who were sort of coming up with ancillary technologies. And the nut of this is that the uh, the average frack you know pump uh, for you know the last several years in uh, in oil and gas has really been a 
uh, technology that hasn't seen much, you know, innovation for 20 years. So what, what needs to be done though? What, what, how could you make it better? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of the technologies center around fuel efficiency. So these things are, you know, the true gas guzzlers of the oil field. And, um, you know, depending on the contract, a lot of times it's the operator that eats the, uh, the, the, the fuel cost, the bunkering cost. And so if you can, um, uh, turn off and on a frack pump when it's not being used automatically, then you can save thousands and thousands of, of uh, gallons of diesel on a single job. What, what I learned through this was that nobody turns off the pump trucks during a frack job. Frack jobs, you know, today when you're doing a four well zipper, that's like a month, maybe six weeks for, for a frack job. That's, that's six weeks to a month that all of those units are staying on. And uh, so that not only burns through fuel, but that eats up maintenance costs. So there was a company in this story uh, called EKU Power Drives. It actually came from Stuttgart, Germany. They, they were, the, the founders were actually, um, got their start working on Formula One race car technology. And when they went on a field trip to the United States, they realized that one of the most fuel inefficient uh, systems um, in the United States was your frack pump. Um, and so, so that's just one example, but there was other, there was other companies. One uh, was looking at vibration sensing because these, not only do they take, they consume a lot of fuel, the frack pumps, they shake, they, they vibrate nonstop. Is, and that, is that a good indication of what's about to break? If you monitor it, yeah. Uh, but some of these cavitations are happening at such a fast rate, you can't even see it with the human eye. So you actually do need sensor technology. Um, and, and we looked at a couple others, but, but the, the, the main thing was, can you make these things more fuel efficient and can you make them last longer? And then you, you reduce the overall lifetime cost of a frack pump. And so, um, it was very interesting to me cause that was sort of a hardware story and not like a rock story, which is what a lot of petroleum engineers, you know, the core of our audience, they go towards. Um, but this one really resonated. That's why it's number three on our list for 2019. Right. Well, it does show that, you know, at a time when they, their rates keep going down, they've got to find some fairly cost-effective ways of, of, of preserving equipment that chew, gets chewed up really fast. Yeah, yeah. And, and as we know that we're going into another slowdown, um, you know, trying to keep capital useful is, is, uh, is pretty important. So number two on our list, number two. In 2040, will there be jobs for petroleum engineers? Now, Steve, this is your story. We had Nathan Meehan on recently for a podcast. I kind was going to was gonna ask you to talk about that in a second. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, don't okay. get ahead of me. Now, yeah, that was a story that was uh, kind of just dropped out of the blue. The every, you know, periodically BP does a, a briefing on what the outlook is. And at the very last question was from a student, an uh, international petroleum engineering student asked, will there be jobs in the future? And they gave a very convincing, at the time, argument about, yes, there absolutely will be, because really, when you look at what we are predicting for demand, it's not what it was maybe two or three years ago, but there's an awful lot of demand, and it'll remain by 2050. 2050. Now, the thing is, I've been thinking, and certainly that strikes a chord at a time when uh, petroleum engineering programs are at all-time low, or back at lows probably they reached, I should say, in the 90s, but that it's a time when there's a lot of doubt among the students about whether they're getting a degree that's going to mean a career for them. And, you know, I, the, the answer was fairly unequivocal, although the more I think about, the more I'm concerned. I'm working on a story now looking at some of the things that uh, Trent alluded to. You know, yes, there will be the demand for oil, but 
with the kind of things we're talking about here today, will there actually be the need for that many engineers to go after it? Is that is the relationship between engineers and per million barrels uh, there anymore? So tell me, talk to them about, I think, one of our best podcasts of the year. It was a very popular podcast episode, um, but it was also, so this is the number, this, this topic, you know, was the number two most read story of, on JPT of 2019 and the number one most read um, or downloaded paper from One Petro, our technical uh, paper database, was written by former SP president uh, Nathan Meehan, and, and and that paper was dealing with this exact same question, which is, you know, is this the end of petroleum engineering as we know it? If I, I believe is the title, and so, you know, as a society, you know, at the SBE, um, you know, this is obviously this resonates with us too because people are thinking about the future of their careers, and I think what what you know you've kind of talked about. Um, what Nathan focused on a lot is that uh, we shouldn't be surprised by this in a time of volatility, but the in which the oil and gas uh, industry always goes through a, a cycle of volatility. The uh, but the other side of this coin is that there's a lot of automation technology coming in. There's a you know, we've been talking about the digital stuff, and a lot of that is going to reduce um, the need for manpower in this business. And so, so on one hand, you have just this, uh, this, this long, lower for longer down cycle, and then you have software coming in. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty there. Yeah, it, d- it definitely seems like a world where you're going to have to be really good, not only at the basics of executing what you know, but figuring out ways to do things better, to, to innovate, to, to change, change the world, and maybe even find ways that they don't need, where they won't need so many engineers. So. Yeah, and just to toot the horn a little bit, I mean, that's, that's why the SBE is probably going to be more critical, you know, for this generation than, than uh, they ever imagined, because you're going to have to stay on top of things, the, the world's going to move faster, um, and you're going to have to learn from your peers more often, um, like you said, to, to sort of fight for those margins, fight for, um, you know, spot at the top. And so, uh, so hopefully, you know, uh, there, there are jobs for petroleum engineers in the future. I certainly think there are. And, uh, and it's going to be interesting, though, definitely a, a time of change for this industry. Well, yeah, certainly from what I can see on, uh, you know, more automated drilling rigs, for example, they're really good at executing programs, but you're going to have to have humans to come up with new ideas, how to do things better. Right. But we just talked about one of the other most popular stories was moving um, uh, directional drillers into the office so that yeah. they can oversee not one, but six rigs. And so as it's, you know, there's a kind of a phrase out there, more more wells, less heads. And uh, so, you know, more more production with less people. And I think we're sort of starting to see the pieces of that come together. Now, what it means for people in the field versus petroleum engineers in the office, you know, remains to be seen. This is, uh, you know, another thing where, you know, we're in the, we're in such early innings, it's hard to make any real big calls. Um, but uh, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's an important theme to our members and readers. And no doubt we will, uh, that's not the last of it that you're going to hear. Okay, Trent, we've kept, we've kept them waiting long enough. What's number one? All right, the most read story of 2019 is next. But first, sign up for the JPT newsletter. This is a hassle-free way to stay connected. You can read features on technology advancements and exploration and production. You're going to get reminders on oil and gas issues. And you're going to just get general news about what's going on in the SPE and with its members. The JPT newsletter keeps you up to date with the latest technology developments. It's delivered to your inbox every week, and it's just a great way to stay ahead of the curve. We're going to include a link to this free newsletter in the show notes of the podcast. Click it, get signed up, and you're done. 
All right, so um, number one on our list is uh, you ready? You ready, Steve? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm guessing they're not going to guess this one. I'm guessing that you're right. That uh, this is probably going to be a little bit unexpected. But I'll go ahead and read it. Here's the headline. Number one. The UK releases 130 terabytes of oil and gas data. So this is our number one most read story by far. And I have a little theory. It's pretty simple. Free data, lots of it. People well, clicked. That's the irony of this industry. And by the way, the story is again by Matt Zabrowski. Is that um, on one hand, you know, the, the industry is stoking this huge, huge hunger for a generation of younger um, engineers to do data analysis but the data is just oftentimes missing. Right. I see this a lot with startups. And so you're, you know, a couple of years ago when I think the startup explosion was really at its peak in oil and gas, especially on the software side, you're going to meet a lot of people with lots of great ideas from offshore, you know, conventional to uh, unconventional onshore applications. But depending on the maturity, they would often tell you, all we need is an operator. All we need is data now. Like we got the algorithm. We know it works, but we don't have any data to prove it on. And and so that cycle sort of uh, has stymied companies. So I'm sure that a lot of people that went and downloaded this data fit into that bucket. But uh, but I'm sure that there's, you know, all you know, it spans the spectrum of, of who would be interested in this data. Well, and for years, the tech directors of uh, SPE have talked about the need for more data uh, in education, because there's just the students are having to prove themselves with data that oftentimes is old, or you can't really uh, do a great piece of research work on unconventional in an unconventional world with conventional data. And this being the UK, um, this was North Sea subsurface data, and I think other things too. Just all the operating d uh, details related to some of these fields, so that it allowed people look at a lot of look at the the fields in a lot of different ways yeah and i think you know one of the incentives for the uk government to do this is because they want people to go and find you know uh, more res reserves in the north sea and uh, this was just seen as as one easy way to help spur or encourage or facilitate uh, those efforts one of the things that made this uh the broaden the audience for this this story was uh, mentioned in a silicon valley blog yeah hacker news which is uh sort of a um, very popular blog in the Silicon Valley world. Um, it's it's sort of the uh, uh, blog arm of Y Combinator, which is a, a very well known excel startup accelerator uh, over there in Silicon Valley. And um, and yeah, so we saw a lot of views come from from that one post, and which was very interesting. Uh, but anytime you're giving away uh, that kind of data and that uh, that sort of volume of it. Uh, it really gets uh, the data scientists, people of the world, the programmers all excited. And it'll be interesting to see if others can do that in other sectors. I know at the drilling conference this year, a group was talking about trying to create what amounts to a, a free data source like in the tech world is called GitHub, mm -hmm. where you can find software and data and a lot of other kind of related things. And uh, I'll have to come back and see how they've done in the first year. You know, my look at this is that there's a clear sort of generational divide on the younger end of the oil and gas spectrum. You're going to see a lot of people who have sort of grown up with the open source programming world. And those are the younger engineers listening who are most inclined to sort of tear down these proprietary walls that we were talking about earlier. And so I think as you see that generation um, you know, we call them digital natives as they become more important from a managerial point of view, you know, I see, things like this becoming increasingly common. But if uh, if you're talking about, uh, 
you know, the the uh, traditional route of the oil and gas, it's it's been to not give data away. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's considered uh, a precious, the most one of the most precious things you have as an oil and gas company. But everybody's saying the world's getting so complex, we need to share data to learn from each other faster. And that's exactly how Silicon Valley has risen, you know, so fast in all of our lives. Well, I mean, Clint Murchison, that famous uh, wildcatter from up in Dallas, always said, well, he, he was talking about money, but I think it applies to software. Is it, it's like manure. If you don't spread it around, it doesn't, doesn't do you any good. Well, I don't think we can end on a better note than that one, Steve. Uh, you you just nailed it right there. So, you know, uh, it, this is probably the last time our listeners will hear us in the year 2019. I know everybody's saying that the new decade's going to begin. Last time I checked, I thought the decade began on, on the one year, not the zero year. But, uh, but anyways, we wish everybody out there a really happy new year. Please keep listening to us. And uh, we want you to keep the conversation going. So use the hashtag SBE podcast on all your social media channels to reach out, leave us comments, leave us reviews. We really want to hear from you. And uh, of course, share the podcast with whoever you think would find it interesting. We're on uh, SBE podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and tune in. And of course, we want you to read JPT online and in print. So make sure to bookmark us and check in for new content. That's it for now. I'm Trent. I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. SBE Podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, the largest individual member organization serving managers, engineers, scientists, and other professionals worldwide in the upstream segment of the oil and gas industry. Learn more at sbe.org.